I've been doing uh I've been doing a taste test of different mints. I have like a bit of an oral fixation, and so I thought I wanted to try and find like the the mint that I liked the best. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear more about your mint project. Yeah, so I mean, um, you you can't do sugar because that's bad for the teeth, right? Uh, and you, so you gotta you you're already if you're going to like be eating mints all the time, you're already locked into the world of sugarless mint. Is the Altoid a, a sugarless mint? It's not. No, it's a sugared mint. Um, and so those are out from the from the start. What about the Tic Tac? The Tic Tac is is sugar. What uh, a very funny thing about the Tic Tac. I know all the lore now because I'm like deep into this world. Uh, Tic Tac says sugar free. Uh, on the packaging, but the reason that they can say it's it's sweetened with sugar. In fact, it's ninety nine percent sugar, according to an article. That That's crazy. Or they can say that it's sugar free because they're so small. Like a serving size is one Tic Tac, and it's so small that they're there. It's below the minimum threshold of like the sugar that you have to state according to FDA guidelines. I think what I settled on. I think really what any rational person would settle on uh, are xylitol mints. Xylitol is a natural product, comes from birch trees. It basically tastes like sugar uh, and it's good for your teeth for some reason. Um, and so uh, there are a number of different xylitol mints that you can get. Uh, what I'm looking for, long lasting and mild flavor. If it's too sweet, that's too much. Okay, so full disclosure to our audience, Xylitol is the new sponsor for Zero Sum Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640 mostly anonymous American billionaires. I'm Joe. Uh, I'm Chad. We are the hosts of this show. <laughs> you may remember us from the other 29 episodes. <laughs> it would be really weird if we weren't those. Just wanted to introduce ourselves at the top of the show. Uh, we're going to take off. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. We're not going to listen. We don't participate in any way. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Whatever this is, I, again, I don't know. I'm not involved. Um, okay. Regular listeners will know that we each show spend a few minutes talking about billionaires in the news. And I think that's what we're going to do right now. Yeah. Is that right, Chad? Absolutely. Okay. Let's do it. Billionaires in the news. So some billionaires have died recently. Two, is that right? Yeah. Uh, one is a German billionaire. So he's not on our list, but, you know, uh, he did die. Uh, his name is Carl Erevan Hobb. Are you sure you're pronouncing that right? <laughs> no, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it sounds very wrong. Carl Erevan Erivan, E-R-I-V-A-N hyphen H-A-U-B. Uh, he's uh, officially been declared dead after being missing for three years. So no body? No body. He disappeared mysteriously. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. He was uh, he was skiing in the Swiss Alps at the, uh, at the base of the Matterhorn. Uh, Carl Erevan Hobb was the CEO of Tengelman Corporation. Uh, that's a German retail holding company. So this story is actually not all that interesting, even though he uh, disappeared in the Swiss Alps, which sounds intriguing. Uh, it's pretty clear that he just died skiing. It's pretty clear to all the sheep out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knows? Um, but uh, the reason, you know, like really the main reason I'm bringing it up uh, is because whenever I was researching him, I came across one of the coolest things that I've ever seen in my life, uh, which is a Wikipedia page called list of people who disappeared. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. How long is the list? It is insanely long. Uh, and there are actually two of them. They had to split it up into pre and post 1970. List. Of yeah. It's just, it's incredible. Like I, I went on it. I, I just clicked on a random name and the random name, I was like, this is how neat the list is. <laughs> the random name was Don Taxay, T-A-X-A-Y, like a fancy taxi. So he disappeared mysteriously. Uh, he was a numismatist. Do you remember what a, what a numismatist is? Something to, something to do with numbers. A numismatist uh, is uh, someone who uh, studies and collects uh, rare and old coins. Uh, ah, right. A coin collector. <laughs> so... So, uh, uh, Don Taxe was probably the most prominent American numismatist and he disappeared in a kind of a weird way. Like I'm reading it. So in 2005, 2006, the members of the Numis numismatic bibliomania society's mailing list undertook a joint research project to discover what had happened to tax a, they established that tax a had been introduced to Indian spirituality by Walter Breen, a uh, little window pops up over Walter Breen. Uh, who is Walter Breen? Has there been a documentary made about this person? Not yet, but you might want to make that after you hear who Walter Breen is. Uh, he was an American convicted child sex offender, activist for pedophilia as part of NAMBLA, numismatist, writer, oh and husband of Mar Marion Zimmer Bradley. He was known among coin collectors for writing Walter Breen's complete encyclopedia of U.S. and colonial coins. Breen numbers from his- Holy <laughs> shit. Hold on. Run that back. Uh, DJ Wikipedia. What was that first thing that you said? Uh, activist for Nambla is uh, they kind of like rush through that and what? get to his many accomplishments in the field of numismatistry. No, that should be involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that guy convinced Don Taxe to give all of his money to the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. The guy from, I think the, that's the one, the guy from Wild Wild Country documentary. Oh, the Wild Wild Country. Oh my <laughs> yes. God. And one. so he gave, he liquidated his numismatic fortune and gave it all uh, to the Bhagwan and. Holy shit. And then disappeared. This is an incredible trace. story. <laughs> and no one ever figured it out. My mind is spinning in all these different directions, but have you, have you ever heard the, uh, the advice that, you know, as academic people who write papers or who are teaching students who are writing papers, that you, oftentimes you don't find your real idea until you're at the very end of the, the, the first draft of, of your paper. <laughs> yeah. So like the, the final paragraph of the first draft is where your true thesis emerges for the first time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think I've ever heard something like that. I feel like this is the true podcast. <laughs> After 30 episodes, it should be a podcast about disappeared people. It's <laughs> yeah. so much better. That's true. And probably a lot easier, too. I mean, yeah, way better, way more fun. Like, it's like every episode, we have to apologize for how boring we're doing. <laughs> like, this is, we should talk about this. I think there's something here. Yeah. Well, let's ignore that insight for now and move on to our second news story. <laughs> uh, another billionaire, Charles DeVoe, uh, an American billionaire, jumped off of a skyscraper 
What? Yes. Yeah. It's like something out of the 80s. He uh, uh, he jumped out of a window uh, after his firm International Value Advisors, uh, which sounds super legitimate. So this just happened. Somebody jumped off of a skyscraper in a city in 2021 onto the sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, he ran International Value Advisors, and uh, it, it was very weird what happened. He just out of nowhere announced that he would be liquidating his mutual funds and shutting down his investment firm. Uh, it's not something that anybody ever does. One expert said that liquidation like this is only done in, quote, dire circumstances like a public scandal. Uh, but there isn't one here. So maybe there was a pending one uh, or something like that. Oh, so that's going to be like in the news next episode. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Like the reason why. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I guess so. But I mean, it might develop. Nobody knows right now. But. Uh, three weeks after he announced they're shutting down, he jumped out of a window. Okay. Well, that's a crazy story. This uh, next one's a, a super brief one. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg bought 600 more acres of Hawaii, uh, adding further evidence to this podcast belief that Zuckerberg is trying to colonize Hawaii in a kind of soft financial way. We'll refer our listeners to the Colonizer Next Door episode if you've not listened to it already. Go do it. I think it's one of your better segments, Chad. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think he might be trying to control at least one of the islands, if not the entire island chain. Last story, Elon Musk hosted SNL. I think we talked about it maybe at the in the last episode or, or we said that it was going to happen. Uh, uh, predictably, uh, not funny. He came out, uh, for the monologue. I don't know if you heard about this, Joe, and said, uh, I have Asperger's, uh, which no one knew. Oh, I did hear about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, also predictably it turned into a bunch of internet takes, uh, where people were like, you know, you're so brave, uh, or alternatively, uh, you're so awful for self-aggrandizement or something like that. Um, uh, one of the things like I did, I found out in, in reading about this a little bit is that there's a whole politics around using the term Asperger's. Like first, it's not a diagnosis that anybody uses anymore. And like almost a decade ago, it was classed as a form of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it, it sort of stigmatizes other autistic people further right so like in saying oh i have asperger's you're sort of saying i'm not like the other autistic people i'm a part of a special class of autistic people uh that's high functioning and so there's this like distancing in in uh, uh. that happens in using that term and so the medical community kind of decided that that was not good uh but the second reason is that uh in 2017 it was discovered that the former uh, disorder, the disorder's namesake, uh, Dr. Hans Asperger, uh, was a full blown, uh, like Nazi Joseph Mengele type of, uh, guy who was sending disabled kids to extermination camps, uh, and just like a true monster. That's a, like an incredibly complicated thing immediately. That's so crazy yes. that he would just like step into that uh, tar pit. Yes. Okay, Joe, you're getting to the question that no one asked which is why did he say it right uh why did why did Elon Musk pick that particular moment out of all the interviews that he does and twitter threads that he writes or whatever to reveal his diagnosis and this this is my theory because it's a perfect win-win for Elon Musk it gives him a massive edge as an SNL host suddenly he's got a more generous audience 
one, it distracts from the performance, right? Like the thing that was in the news the next day was Elon Musk reveals that he has Asperger's, not whether he was funny or not on SNL. But more than anything else, it is like it's the ultimate Larry David move because it's the perfect excuse for failing at something that you like preemptively give ahead of time just in case you fail. Right. Like so like because then everybody like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, of course he wasn't funny. He has Asperger's right? like that. And so the the really ruthless, you know, thing is uh, like he held on to his Asperger's diagnosis until he could use it to gain social advantage in some way. Right. So, like, so yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. it turned into a huge sort of media win for him hosting NS- SNL whenever he said that he had Asperger's. If he just went on there and was like, not funny, then it would be a Steve Forbes kind of SNL performance. And, and, and Steve Forbes was like rightly sort of made fun of and, and uh, I think greatly diminished in the, in the public eye uh, after that. All of that makes sense. I just am going circling back to this fact that evidently I didn't know this until this moment, but Asperger was a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're kind of hung up on that point. Well, it seems like <laughs> if you're not hung up on it, you're missing a point. This is like, <laughs> like this is like reading a, Don Taxay's uh, Wikipedia page and kind of fixating <laughs> on his coin collecting and not noticing that a world-renowned pedophile forced him to give all of his money to the Bhagwan. All right, Chad, today I'm going to be talking about Bruce Karsh. Have you ever heard of Bruce Karsh? No. I, I do like yeah. his last name. That's because there's nothing really to know about him, and no one knows who he is, really, unless you happen to be in high finance and in the 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 distressed debt segment of high finance, in which case he's a, he's a minor celebrity. Okay. But, <laughs> he's a minor distressed debt celebrity? Well, he's like the guy, like I read somewhere that like, there's two Bruce's that matter in the world, Bruce Springsteen. But if you're in distressed, it's Bruce Karsh. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of like I can think of doing. a lot of Bruce's that matter more. <laughs> I think it was whoever said that was like in distressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing you have to know about Bruce Karsh is that he went to Duke as an undergraduate Duke University. In Durham, North Carolina, Duke. You're familiar with this university, correct? Yeah, I mean, I've you have some it. sense of what Duke University is all about. I guess you've so. heard of it. Yeah, not as much as you. Uh, you're from the you're from the that area. Duke is a horrible place. Duke is not a place where good people spend time. Oh wow, pretty <laughs> strong generalization. <laughs> well, it's just if you happen to be a Tar Heels fan, as I am. It's a fact of life. Duke bad. (laughs) (laughs) Duke is bad. A lot of very bad people have gone to Duke, have spent time supporting Duke. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically like there's just a, it's just a negative gravitational force in the world. And so um, Bruce Karsh is not the worst person to ever be associated with with duke but he's associated with a bad thing 
and that's not okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So now your right. now your personal prejudices are out of the way. Uh, uh, yeah, he studied economics there, and uh, he went on to get his law degree at the University of Virginia. And it's it's clear that Bruce Karsh is a is a pretty smart guy. He was high achieving wherever he went. He was a clerk for the for for Justice Anthony Kennedy at the Supreme Court, and you know, like the the most important transition, the most important moment in his in his career uh, was in his mid twenties when he transitioned out of a career in law into a career in finance. So at some point, he realized he wasn't going to make it in the power game. So if he was clerking for a Supreme Court justice. He probably had some pretty high ambitions in the legal field, but maybe that didn't pan out. So he's like, no, power, it wasn't like that. No, it was more just like he kept on getting new opportunities, you know? So he's like, he was obviously like a golden. <laughs> he just can't help but from making tons of money. He was very high achieving. He obviously impressed everybody, you know, wherever he went. And when he was clerking for Justice Anthony Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy was like, you know what you should do? Go work for a firm in LA and you'll meet some people and who knows what'll happen. LA's crazy. And like, maybe you'll find yourself in some weird situation. Okay. Anthony Kennedy did not say, Hey, Hey bro, go, go to LA. LA is crazy. <laughs> it's kind of, according to Bruce Garsh, that's kind of, I mean, you know, in so many words, I feel like you're that's, attributing a speaking style that, I think that's probably right. But the substance of what, what I'm, I'm recounting here is what Bruce Karsh is at least his version of events. And he says, you know, Anthony Kennedy encouraged him to move to LA, take a job in a high powered law firm and kind of let the chips fall where they may and where they, where the chips fell was somebody basically headhunted him and asked him if he wanted to get involved in the financial sector. And he said yes and started making a lot more money and then kind of found quickly that he was intellectually interested in distressed debt. He found that this was uh, uh, an undervalued segment of the economy, something that he understood and was exciting to him. And he was like way ahead of the curve and he was like a pioneer in the distressed debt industry. So Chad, I mean, do you, do you have any idea what distressed debt is? Not really. Uh, I guess I could, I could take an uneducated guess, but I won't even do that. I, I will just, uh, lob it back to you and say, no, I don't. Tell me what distressed debt is. Okay, I will in a second. I'm just going to say a couple of more things about Bruce Karsh. He's, you know, he's he now lives in California. He's incredibly rich. His wife is a architect. She has a or a lawyer and a founder of an architecture firm, I should say, in, in Beverly Hills. They're like middle of the road, Clinton, Biden, sort of ultra wealthy liberal people. It, 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 it looks like, um, they are obviously pretty serious philanthropists. They give a lot of money away. They've got very large checks to a lot of 
colleges and universities and hospitals and a long list of other places, at least the internet would give you the impression that they're much more generous with their fortune than a lot of the other people that we see on this list. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's cool. Where did they get all their money or where did Bruce get all of his money? Uh, he's one of the founders of Oak tree capital management, which, as I said, is a, is a, a fund or a, or a company that specializes in distressed debt. Another term for distressed debt that maybe our listeners are, are more familiar with is vulture investing. So, Chad, you don't know anything about it. Cool. I'm going to talk about it because there's literally nothing else to talk about with Bruce, Bruce Karsh. There's no scandals. There's no like other infrastructural angle that I could find or I could think of. There's not very much information about him personally. <clears throat> he was a guy was a smarty pants and, you know, uh, he did a bunch of smarty pants things like went to college and then did, you know, Supreme Court clerking. And but then he, right. like just, you know, and then he just got into distressed debt. So that, that, that's like the one thing. Yeah, does. he's just a smarty pants who try who who figured out one way to make a lot of money safely in high finance. Okay, uh, and safe, safely is a, a weird word because distressed debt is risky in its way. But if you're good at it and you you can understand exactly what you're getting into, I think the chances of having like asymmetric returns that you can count on are are a lot better than in a lot of other parts of, of casino capitalism. I'm going to introduce you to the topic of distressed debt by quoting the opening paragraph of the Investopedia article on distressed debt. Okay. Okay. Are you ready for this? Yep. Sharpen your talons and prepare to feast on the weak and the dying. <laughs> You'll need to think like a vulture as we enter the unforgiving world of distressed debt investing. In this world, investors specifically seek out companies that are performing poorly or are on the brink of bankruptcy. Then they buy up bonds and take control. Okay, end quote. So distressed debt investors capitalize on the economic desperation of others. This is what they do. Uh, the, the basic strategy is identify a company that has either declared bankruptcy or is likely to declare bankruptcy and then begin buying up all the bonds of that firm. So as, as you probably know, this just means buying up the company's debt. So why would you do this? Well, fr from a financial perspective, there are two main reasons. The first is uh, because uh, if, a, if a company is in free fall, in financial free fall, you can often purchase their debt for pennies on the, on the dollar. So potentially very undervalued. And two, because in chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings, debt holders are often given priority over other, other people or institutions or entities uh, over, over stockholders, for example, uh, and, and oftentimes even employees. Um, so, uh, if you've gobbled up a company's distressed debt, you can sort of jump to the front of the line in the bankruptcy process, which means that you get to call a lot of the shots during the process of reorganization okay. or liquid liquidation. 
Um, it's just the way that the rules are written, but it, it puts you in a extraordinarily powerful position during the, the reorganization bankruptcy process. If you hold a lot of that debt, uh, and this is part of what makes it a less risky sort of venture than some other things. Yes, you're buying debt that may not be able to be paid back, but once you go to court, you're at least going to get listened to. Yeah, yeah. So it's potentially very lucrative. If if it works out, investors can can make money either when a, f- a failing company somehow manages to recover, which could happen if it were acquired by another company right. uh, or if it were restructured in some way, or if it were like rejuvenated through injections of capital from somewhere, like all of these are plausible scenarios. So you're buying the debt pennies on the dollar. And if any of these things happen, then the company sort of like has legs again. And all of a sudden they're able to pay back the debt and it's worth much more than what you paid for it. Yeah. Um, so the, the the value of your distressed debt in that case could increase. The other possibility of making money is if the the company goes bankrupt. Uh, again, vulture investors have this privileged position in the bankruptcy proceeding, so they can just sort of like swagger into court with their privileged debt holder status, and then you know like bang heads and bust kneecaps demanding that they get paid. And, um, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, vulture investors are known to be especially aggressive and hostile in their business negotiations. This is the the name of the game. You know, it's like they, they have, sometimes they have the law on their side in a certain way, uh, but they still have to go in there and convince people to the, to pay them when there's a lot of other people that are hurting. And so um, they can be very demanding as these hmm. processes play out. So I don't know. Any questions about that? Clear uh, enough? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, maybe you could tell me a little bit, like, how are they demand? Like, what leverage do they have to make people pay them? It's a good question. You know, I think it's going to vary a lot on a case-by-case basis. The important thing to know is that the law states that they should be paid back before a lot of other people yeah. or a lot of other institutions. And so even if there's a limited amount of uh, assets to go around, they're going to get a big piece of that pie. And th- I think they can, you know, make legal arguments to suggest that they should get an even bigger piece of that pie. I'm not sure exactly why in, in any given situation they would be awarded more or less money. I just know that it's a financial opportunity that continues to be exploited and that the laws uh, and the policies that are in place sort of allow for this process to, to play out again and again. And the, and okay. the hedge funds so, and the financial industry are aware of this. So it's like one of these industries that uh, exists entirely because of uh, a legal exploit. Right? So like, I mean, you know, somebody's going to come in and know way more about this and maybe have some 
better way of, of framing it, but that's kind of my understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, like, like why would debt holders be prioritized over employees of the company? If you have somebody who's been working for a company for 20 years, de devoted their whole life to it, and then you just have a hedge fund who comes in and buys up a bunch of cheap debt at the last minute, like what is the, why should they be prioritized over someone who's de devoted their life to a company? It's just the law. So, but I mean, this is, this is a good segue because like distressed debt investing is legal. It's very obviously legal or many, many kinds of it are legal. But as you're kind of nudging us to think about Chad, does that make it okay? Does that make it ethical? <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm sure you have some feelings about it. I think it's a conversation that we can have. I, the the way that I'm structuring my segment that that allows for us to have this conversation is I'm going to actually walk us through a scholarly article published in the Journal of Business Ethics in the late 1990s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, late 1990s in business ethics. Uh, I'm immediately thinking of uh, the the scene from Billy Madison. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The uh, ethics of uh, business can be summarized in... Uh... Yeah. Um... See, uh, ethics are... Uh... You know, the, the, the thing about ethics... Ah! <laughs> that question was not fair! After many hours of research and soul searching and deep reflection, this business ethics article is the most interesting thing I could come up with. This, <laughs> this is it. This is the best thing out there that I could yeah. talk about. Uh, the, the title of the paper, which is written by this guy, A. Scott Carson, who's a Canadian business professor, is... Vulture Investors, Predators of the 90s, An Ethical Examination. That's the title. So while the article doesn't mention Bruce Karsh specifically, it's pretty much about Bruce Karsh. Okay. <laughs> this is the moment in his career when he's emerging as an industry leader in the area of distressed investing. Right. Oak Tree Capital was founded in 1995. Uh, this it's is very much the world that Bruce Karsh, Bruce Karsh. inhabits. <laughs> yeah, like more than any other single person, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. probably. So I don't think the article is brilliant or amazingly interesting, and I don't even agree with any of it. <laughs> but <laughs> it may give us <laughs> some uh, some interesting things to talk about as we move through some of the points that Carson makes. Sound good? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Carson ultimately argues that... While, while vulture investors very often employ ruthless strategies, they are not ultimately immoral people. <laughs> and okay. on, the, on the way awesome. to making this argument, he, he raises the, the, the possible objections that people may have to this claim. And so we're going to address these different objections. And, and, and again, Chad, you're going to kind of react along the way. So he sets things up. By conceding the point that, that vulture investors are, quote, financial hardball players, they are aggressive, hostile, deceptive, and frequently belligerent, end quote. 
he, he gets that out, out on the table and, and goes on to say that their overall investment approach often involves, quote, stalling, pressure, and bullying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I need to translate this, but just to be clear, what A. Scott Carson is saying is that vulture investors tend to be very serious assholes. <laughs> you know, like if, if you're a kindergartner and you demonstrate any of the characteristics that we would typically associate with vulture investors, you're going to be spending a lot of your childhood in timeout. Yeah. It's not a good way to be. It's bad, bad boy behavior. <laughs> so, okay, next, po- next point. The whole deal with vulture investors is that they seek to profit from someone else's suffering. Yeah. This is the definition of what they do. Uh, to quote Carson again, for the most part, when a vulture wins, someone else loses. So vulture investing is very much a, a zero-sum situation, which is you know relevant to the themes of the show. So does this seem eth- ethically questionable to you so far, Chad? Yes. But it doesn't seem that unusual. I mean, this is sort of like what private equity and activist investing and like basically most of the economy that turns a profit now is just cannibalizing the failing parts of the economy. So like the productive sectors are the things that are eating, that are parasites that are living on top of the dying sectors. Uh, and that's all that we yeah. have now, right? We just have a, I'm going to, I'm going to like hit on this theme too, that, that the entire economy is fake, uh, you know, like, um, and it's, it's just moving numbers around. Okay. Clearly it's ethically questionable. It's sort of a softball. Could you speculate like what an ethical defense of this, what on the surface seems like very horrible behavior, what, what that defense might look like? Any ideas? Well, I know the defense of private equity is that we're taking failing companies and turning them around. And if we can't turn them around, which pst, pst, we're not actually trying to turn them around. We're actually just trying to sell them off for parts. You know, like, uh, so like the, the argument that they, they make is we're actually trying to save these companies and check it out. Sometimes we do, uh, but almost never. Um, uh, and so I could see them making that sort of argument that we're, like we're actually trying to stimulate the economy by saving these failing businesses. Um, I could also see them making some kind of twisted moral argument that debt was incurred and we are helping to ensure that uh, that that debt is paid and and the payment of debt is a moral obligation or I don't know. No, those are I mean, I think, well, the first point you make is like definitely a, a discourse that circulates. I'll, I'll kind of come back to that probably at the end. And what you're pointing to in your second point, I think it's also a real thing. You know, I mean, people sort of just will argue that. Lannisters need to pay their debts. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, it's not like there's nothing to that argument, but in, there's a larger moral framework that that tends to ignore. Um, you know, th- this isn't what Carson focuses on in this article so much. He, he makes some kind of weird points that I'm going to walk you through. So the, the first weird point is that for Carson, Willing harm to others is a morally wrong thing. If I say, Chad, I, I, I want you to die, and because hopefully then I'll get the podcast all to myself, that would be morally wrong for Carson. Uh, okay, so I mean, I already have a problem with this in the, in the sense that 
thoughts are not things that cause actions in the world, right? Like that I can think, I hope Joe dies, but that has absolutely no bearing on your, your mortality. So I don't see that. I don't see I, me thinking or wishing or willing that Joe should die as a necessarily morally problematic thing. So like, you know, <laughs> yeah, something that no. like, That's you know, a, you'd yeah. have a conversation about, right. But like, I'm not actually doing anything to uh, hurry your death, you know. Like, <laughs> it's a. I and I love how you're challenging the basic assumption of everything <laughs> that he's saying. <laughs> um, having bad I, thoughts that, about that, it, you know, like, what are you talking about? Weird. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah, that's where he starts, you know. But it, it's a great point. So, it, in any event, okay, willing harm to others is morally wrong, but this isn't necessarily the motivation that drives the actions of, of vulture investors. So he writes, quote, if it can be shown that vultures do not will harm to others, but are motivated instead by other objectives, then it may be possible to reposition them on the moral scale. Oh, man. <laughs> so, this is so, a very like so, Ayn Rand type of shit, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and greed is good. Uh, you know, in other words, like all we have to do is come up with a plausible excuse for why this is not evil. And then we can actually say it's not evil, even if everybody knows and just immediately when they hear what it is, that it is evil. Uh, <laughs> that's like the true mark of a libertarian. Like in, you know, they're always like in this hypothetical scenario that we could sort of abstract from real life and the lived circumstances that people experience and just sort of say in this in this like sort of weird philosophical way that, you know, if you think about it in this, in this special way that has nothing to do with people's real lives, then actually um, it's good. It's actually good. If you can sell heroin to children on playgrounds, if you think about it and <laughs> yeah. if you think about what freedom is yeah. think about it yeah. for a minute, that's actually good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like that. I mean, like, like what Carson is saying here is that, uh, yes, vulture investors profit off the suffering of others. <laughs> And in general, the increased profit extraction will lead to increased levels of suffering. But <laughs> if oh, you wow. reframe things so that you can imagine suffering as like an unfortunate consequence of your investment, but not the motivation for it, then suddenly it's morally acceptable. Yeah. So he's, I mean, so, I mean, this is, this is what these people always do, right? Like he's applying a deontological, not to get too, too philosophical and, uh, and esoteric for the podcast, but he's applying a sort of deontological ethics to the sphere of finance and saying that if you can will it such that uh, your actions should be a universal moral principle, then, then you're acting justly, right? So, uh, if I can, if I can plausibly say that I'm acting to increase the the overall prosperity of the community or society or whatever, uh, then, then like then what I'm doing is is good. I think Chad, you're exactly right. To trace his argument a little further, he he asks us to think about it another way by suggesting that the the object of a vulture is to quote seek out high yield opportunities in finance. Yield is a function of risk. The investor weighs the potential return against the risks and takes on the investment if it is judged to be favorable. 
In many respects, this is a highly technical exercise in which the transaction team within the bank works with various computer-based scenarios using discounted cash flow analysis models that are standard for most financial acquisition situations. He's saying vulture investors are motivated by money, not the suffering of others. And I think the, the interesting thing for me in this particular quote is this focus on the, the idea of it being a highly technical exercise. So like the fact that the actual nature of their work is, is highly technical and, and so, so sort of like several degrees removed from the consequences of their actions yeah. somehow makes it uh, morally acceptable. So like when I read this, the first thing that I thought of was uh, was Peter Davis's Vietnam War documentary, Hearts and Minds. Have you seen Hearts and Minds? I don't think I have, no. So one of the more compelling interviews in the film is with a, with a former Air Force pilot who's trying to come to grips with the atrocities that he in, inflicted on the Vietnamese people. And I'm, I'm going to play you a clip from the film right here. I would follow a little pathway on something like a TV screen in front of me that, that uh, would direct me right, left, or center, follow the steering, keep the steering symbol uh, centered. Uh, I'd see a little attack light when we, when we uh, stepped into attack. I could pull the commit switch on my stick, and the computer took over. The uh, computer figured out the ballistics, the airspeed, uh, the slant range, and dropped the bombs when we got to the appropriate point uh, in whichever kind of attack we'd selected, whether it be flying straight and level or tossing our bombs out. So it was very much of a... A technical expertise thing. I was a good pilot. You know, I had uh, uh, I had a lot of pride in my ability to fly. Never could see the people. You know, you, ne you never could see. Uh, occasionally, you saw the houses when you were bombing uh, around a village or bombing in a village. Uh, you, you know, you never heard the explosion. You never uh, saw any blood or any screams. It was very clean. You're doing a job. You're an expert at what you do. From there, Carson moves on to discuss the ethics of the, quote, strategies and tactics of the vulture, moving beyond this, this idea of motivation to strategies and tactics. So here, again, Carson concedes that, quote, the purpose of vulture investment is to extract value from someone else's portion of the total. Invariably, it is aggressive and often hostile, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, uh, further, the transaction usually involves at least some degree of deception, misrepresentation, bluffing, or outright lying. While a vulture investment could take place without this, it is at least true to say that deception is so common as virtually to be a defining component, end quote. <laughs> so, right. um, He's basically saying, like, people are uh, hostile, aggressive, and deceptive through and through. And it's still ethical, or, or is it getting not ethical? <laughs> for, for him, he's like, this is a little weirder. <laughs> you know? He's like, but he, it, still, it still doesn't amount to it being unethical for Carson. Right. So how do you think he goes about justifying it? He offers up a couple of points. Do you have any any? I, I don't guesses? know. I mean, it's like... I could kill this person with my fists, but if I bring a knife, it will be easier for me to kill this person. Is the choice to bring a knife ahead of time because you if it's a if lying is a necessary 
you know, constituent of this, of the practice of this, you know, way of making money, right? Then you know you have to bring a knife to the, to the fight, right? So like, is the premeditated yeah. uh, choice to bring a knife to a confrontation uh, it in itself an immoral act. Well, the law says yes. That's premeditation, right? Like that you're you're not getting in a fight and killing somebody with your fists in an impromptu way. Like you are making a choice ahead of time to bring a a deadly weapon right to a confrontation. Yeah. And so it's like yeah. it's, the, it's the same sort of logic to me, right? Like um, if there is premeditation of of an ethical, I mean, I'm trying to think in like this fucking guy's way of thinking, like if there's a premeditation of an ethical violation involved, then I don't know how you maintain the idea that it is despite that an ethical thing to do. That, that idea of premeditation <laughs> is interesting to kind of challenge him on. I mean, the, the second part of what you're saying, I think is, is basically anticipating his argument which he, he, he makes in two different ways, I guess. It's two points that are really kind of the same point, which is the, the reason in which bullying and bluffing and lying, why this isn't immoral in the case of distressed investors or vulture investors is because in the world that we live in and in the business world in particular, things are essentially adversarial. So <laughs> since adversarial conflict is commonplace, we shouldn't be too critical of vultures. There is no honor among thieves. So lying is now moral. Like right. that's, that is such like, that is the, like, that's like a, a high school kids sort of thing that they figure out about having ethical arguments. Like it seems very dumb. It doesn't, it doesn't make any moral sense to me at all. Lying is more or less an expectation of business, <laughs> which he compares to poker. He's like people bluff in poker. It's the same thing with business. So it's a space in which it's acceptable. Yeah, <laughs> this is the same. I mean, this is the same thing, like the the same sort of messed up territory that people who make uh, free market arguments about, say, healthcare, uh, get into, which is like, in other words, they use the logic that they apply to the market of like buying Nintendos <laughs> or like, you know, like, like buying completely yeah. superfluous consumer items that uh, are not necessary to one's survival and and healthcare as if uh, like oh well this person uh uh you know uh has a larger incentive to spend more money on their healthcare than they will and this person has less of an incentive then they'll spend less money and uh that's just how people make decisions about healthcare uh you just kind of weigh the pros and cons of how much <laughs> what are you talking about you <laughs> There's something very, very specious about specious. it. <laughs> Not only that, but like, but I mean, since we're talking about ethics, like literally evil, right? Like the, uh, just abstracting, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the arguments that you want to make about, uh, life and death from the people who are actually living and dying. Like just, just, you know, like yeah. just pretending as if these are, these are just purely academic, you know, uh, a question. Yeah, and it's very, it's very, very real. As I'll come to here in in just one more minute. Before before I end the segment, I'll say like, having read into this subject some in preparation for the segment today, I should note that there are others who will go much further than Carson in defending the reputation of vulture investors. And and Chad, you you anticipated some of this at the beginning. One common defense is that. Uh, I guess it's similar defense to to the defense of private equity, is that 
vulture investors are in fact a productive force for good and that they play a, a key role in the inevitable economic cycles of decay and regeneration. So it might look like they're preying on the weak, but in fact, they're just helping the weak move on oh to better God. things or something. Like vultures. You know, like, like, they play like, a vital role well, right, in yeah. the food cycle, right? That's like, the... <laughs> Yeah, that's the whole thing. So, like, Twisted. they're not Twisted. job destroyers so much as job creators, <laughs> because because often vultures will yeah. be the one to shepherd failing companies right. through the restructuring process and, and so on and so forth. Mm. So, you know, there's not much more to say about that. I, th th there is one more important thing to mention about distressed uh, in investors or vulture investors or vulture funds that. Some of our, our listeners, I'm sure, are already well aware of, but I feel the need to point out that these funds or investors don't always just go after companies. They will also go after countries or territories. So uh, it's the same basic formula, but governments that are struggling economically are sometimes out of desperation willing to sell bonds at massively reduced rates. And then hedge funds will come in and buy up all the debt and then are in a very powerful position to negotiate settlements later and some sometimes able to extract enormous profits from states whose economies are failing and where large portions of the population are living in poverty. This is what's happening with Puerto Rico Correct. Yeah. So the the most the most well known examples probably are, are Argentina and Puerto Rico, and I'm guessing many of our listeners know about the Puerto Rican debt crisis that's been in the headlines for years. Uh, at this point, there's been a fair amount of coverage about it. John Oliver did a segment on it back in 2016. The situation got a lot worse in, in two, two, 2017 when Hurricane Maria hit, but. I mean, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico is, is long and complicated and hard to understand adequately unless you, you go back and examine several decades of economic policy and investment history. But in terms of the topic uh, currently under consideration here, the basic fact worth knowing is that vulture hedge funds were, to, to a certain degree, successful in profiting off of Puerto Ricans' desperation. And it's a horrible, horrible situation. And one of those hedge funds was Oak Tree Capital Management, yeah. which you may have forgotten is Bruce Garsh's company. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's that's what I have to say. I like that. I like that strategy of of reading something. I mean, that was a really interesting article to talk about uh, because it is an academic article and it's trying to like make some sort of weird philosophical ethical justification for why social parasites are actually uh, good. You know, like vulture is a bad metaphor. Parasite is a bad because actually vultures and parasites are really valuable creatures in in nature, right? Like <laughs> they need to be there. Whereas, like, it's a it's more of a it's more of a kind of like demonic uh, metaphor. Like, there's some there's got to be some sort sort of type of demon that just like blood sucking. <laughs> some vam va vampire. That's I mean, which is another which is another term that they go by, right? Like. Uh, I mean, vampire is is the is definitely because the the vampire sucks the blood and it goes no. There's nothing productive, right? A parasite a parasite right. is a is a um is a crucial element in a cycle, 
of nutrients moving through an, an ecosystem, right? But a, a vampire, and this is why a vampire is so perverse, is because it's not part of the ecosystem. Because there's no, the vampire never dies, and so the nutrients that it sucks in never get replenished into the, the ecosystem. Hmm. It's, a, it's, it's an unnatural sort of formation, right? Uh, and that's exactly what these these people are, right? Like that that uh, that they're. It's not like a parasite or a vulture where there's a there's a <laughs> there's no productive consumption. It's just a black hole that shit falls and that suffering falls into, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a really that's a really smart point. So we've got to we've got to rate Bruce Karsh, and I, I don't know. I mean, like, obviously, this whole segment we've been talking about how distressed debt investors are horrible at their core other than that is his whole life's work there's nothing else that i can find out about bruce karsh specifically that that like moves him up the scale on the rating system these guys are always um this is not me defending that's why yeah, that's a dynamic that I feel on the show too. If I give somebody a low rating, I'm in some way defending their behavior. Right? Like <laughs> Yeah. But I have to say that like based on like who he seems to be as a person versus a lot of the other people, I want to give him a three, even though distressed debt, I wanna give a six in terms yeah. of like the, I mean, I think it's important to remember if, if, if you're on this list, then your assets should be liquidated. A one means that your assets <laughs> yeah, should be liquidated. Yeah. If you're on, if, um, and so right. three is still yeah. bad. That's what's important to remember in the rating system is that like five <laughs> is not neutral, right? Like zero is neutral. Right. So, Chad, who are you doing today? I'm doing a very well-known billionaire, uh, Bernie Marcus, uh, one of the founders of Home Depot. He's currently in his 90s. I'm not sure of the exact age. Uh, and he doesn't work for Home De- at Home Depot anymore. Um, he uh, He's retired from that. He, does, he is still very active, though, and he spends a lot of time uh, with a media entity he founded called the Job Creators Network. Uh, that you may have heard of the job creators network. So stupid. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I just I wanted to say, like at the beginning, we've had a number of home improvement billionaires so far. Well, well, the reason that you got this one is because I did yeah, Menards. Yeah, and uh, I knew that there were two two founders of Home Depot. Uh, Ken Langone and Bernie Marcus. Oh, Ken Langone is the one I've heard of more. Yeah, he's on TV too all the time. Uh, however, there were actually five and they're all billionaires. So they're all going to be on our list at some point. I'm imagining that they have sort of more boring lives. And so I'm going to save talking about Home Depot as an entity for a future billionaire. And with Bernie Marcus, I'm going to mainly talk about like Bernie Marcus as a cultural figure. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds so, cool. um, who is he? He, uh, Bernie Marcus is the son of immigrants who tells the story of founding Home Depot like this. He was a plucky young guy with no money 
but lots of talent and a great idea that he dreamed up with Arthur Blank one day in a coffee shop, a hardware megastore. Uh, he got a banker to take a risk on loaning him startup capital, and the rest is history, and, and we have Home Depot. Um, <laughs> but uh, that is, that's actually not at all what happened, and... Uh, uh, you know, like he makes it sound like he had like a mom and pop's hardware store that he just he ran it so well that it just blew up into this national chain. Um, uh, but uh, he, that's not what happened. Uh, this is a quote from a Forbes article called The Story of Ken Langone, the visionary behind Home Depot. Uh, quote, Home Depot had a somewhat unusual start. It all stemmed from an abrasive relationship the founders, Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank, had with Sandy Sigaloff, CEO of Dalen Corporation. At the time, Bernie Marcus was working for Sigaloff as CEO of Handy Dan, a home improvement company. Dalen owned 81% of the stock of Handy Dan, while Ken Langone owned 16 of the 19% of public stock. But corporate infighting created such a stressful situation that Langone forced the sale of his Handy Dan stock. And eventually, that move enabled Bernie Marcus, along with fellow Handy Dan colleague Arthur Blank, as well as another, another industry pro, Pat Farah, to uh, to be free to create the concept that blossomed in Atlanta due to the mega success we now know as Home Depot. So, like, a bunch of guys who were CEOs of large hardware mega stores orchestrated some sort of weird financial deal with Ken Langone to undermine this chain of large hardware stores to create their own chain of large hardware stores. Like not a rags to riches, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of story at all. It was just some beef. Basically, well, so, I mean, it's a much longer story that's, like, way more involved, but Handy Dan was owned by a larger conglomerate that was in bankruptcy, but Handy Dan was doing well. So they figured out that if they bought up a crucial, you know, a share of Handy Dan's stock, they could somehow take that away uh, from the bankrupt company and then sell that and make a profit on it and use that to start their own non-bankrupt going hardware i mean it was like yeah. <laughs> it's not this guy who's like let's sell circular saws to, like i mean it, it's like, <laughs> so bananas <laughs> just just pure finance but like disregarding that actual origin of his story he is incredibly invested in telling everybody that hard work is the way to get to the top uh he is a huge pull yourself up by your bootstraps guy that's his whole thing in life. Right. Of course it is. And uh, and I found, uh, so I wanted to, to kind of give people a flavor of what that means for him. Uh, I'll start with a, a quotation from a book that he wrote with uh, another founder, Arthur Blank, uh, called Built from Scratch, which again, Home Depot was in no way built from scratch uh, in the sense that one would normally think of that that phrase. It was... Uh, it was built from like a hostile takeover and, you know, weird loans and stuff. <laughs> um, That'd yeah, be a better yeah, name. Weird loans. Um, so, I, I mean, I, 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 I kind of want to take this passage line by line because it's just incredible to me. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, just like, it's going to start out strong. I'll just warn you that. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Bernie Marcus uh, saying, okay. I understand the frustration that blacks faced in America years ago. Oh, God. Okay. So, I mean, just like let that sentence sit with you for a moment. I understand the frustration 
that blacks faced in America years ago. There's a reason I wanted to spend time with that sentence, right? Because frustration is something that you feel. Like I felt frustrated. But when uh, we, when we say you face something, discrimination is the word that we use more often, right? They faced discrimination. People say that's a, a common turn of phrase that you people use. You don't say that uh, people felt discrimination and you don't say that people faced frustration. Uh, in the like, it's like he he wanted to say that he recognized that African Americans faced discrimination. He chooses the verb "faced," and the natural next word to use is discrimination, but he replaces that with frustration, right? Like, which is the so unbelievably weak, right? Right. Like, oh man, Jim Crow is so. Damn frustrating. It's so darn frustrating. <laughs> Centuries of racial violence is just annoying. Okay, so the thing that I think here, and this is going to be the theme that runs throughout this entire segment, is that he he is a dude who constantly lets his mask slip off. He he like he tells on himself in the in the way that he like he chose the wrong verb in that sentence to let us know that his brain was actually thinking discrimination but he chose to paper over the word discrimination with the word frustration uh because he was uncomfortable and, and like discrimination isn't even a word that's strong enough to describe right. what he's really trying to describe but we say like face discrimination that's a common turn of phrase face discrimination people say that all right. the time right yeah. like, and that's what i'm saying you chose the verb faced so you were thinking discrimination but like you you act you know you changed it okay so i'm going to continue so uh i understand the frustration that blacks faced in america years ago next sentence jews suffered the same obstacles hold on a second that's incredibly complicated. It's, yes. Okay. So, yeah. That's a good way to put it, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, okay, seems wrong, but, oh, but let's see, let's see where you're headed. Jews suffered the same obstacles. Large corporations, banks, and industries were devoid of Jews in positions of authority. We couldn't belong to exclusive clubs or high society. <laughs> so, so the way that he's understanding the frustration that blacks faced in America years ago, not now, not when this book was written in 1999, uh, but years ago when when things were bad for blacks in America, when they felt frustrations at that time, Jews also suffered the same obstacles. And those obstacles were that we did not have representation in large corporations, banks and industries uh, in leadership positions and also we couldn't be in the horsey riding and golfing clubs that, uh, well, I mean, so there's, there's things that are like absolutely absurd about what he's saying. And then things to kind of, I guess, keep in mind. I mean, like the obvious fact that makes everything that he's saying sort of completely stupid is that Jews were not enslaved in America. Yeah. You know, that didn't happen. Which is not to say that there is not. That there hasn't been a, a, a and and continuing and horrible discrimination uh, to reduce it to the same obstacles and and you're gonna I guess right. you know I, I you're gonna see why this is so problematic in the very next sentence you know I don't think that it's uh, inherently problematic to draw a kind of intersectionalist comparison between uh, forms of power that are oppressing. 
uh, different people, right? Like in other words, to to uh, acknowledge how uh, the same kinds of structures might oppress people in different ways. Like that's not there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, but when we get to the next sentences, which is that like first of all, we're not talking about slavery, we're not talking about Jim Crow. We're talking about were these people CEOs. And were they allowed into the country clubs? Those are the two examples that he gives us of what it meant to be excluded as a uh, as an African American as a Jew. yeah, which is right. oh my god. Okay, and so right. we we couldn't belong to exclusive clubs or high society, so we had to work harder and smarter to succeed. There is a great jealousy of the accomplishments of Jews in America, but we fought for our share. Okay. Let me let me just re- reiterate this just so to put a fine point on it. Jews and blacks suffered the same obstacles in his words. So we uh, Jews had to work harder and smarter. And there's great jealousy of us. Uh, but we fought for our share. Right. In, in other words, saying like the the implicit there's no way around the implicit argument of this paragraph being that uh, African-American people have not worked hard enough or smart enough uh, right. to get their piece of the pie. It's disgusting. Right. Terrible. Right. That's disgusting. A, a, just a, <clears throat> a horrible Tucker Carlson, Fox news brained perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. And if you have heard of Bernie Marcus, like the, you know, maybe you're some sort of stock investor or something. If you've seen him on um, CNBC or something, but, most people, if they have heard of him, they've heard of him in the context of philanthropy because he's often in like the top 20 uh, biggest philanthropists in the United States. And uh, and he has a, a lot to say about philanthropy in the United States. It's not a random occurrence that Americans are the most charitable people in the world. It's a result of a hard work, entrepreneurship, and yes, a free market system. Because in order to give money, you need to make money. It's not an evil concept. I want to go back to how he started out that clip, which is it's not, quote, it's not a random occurrence that Americans are the most charitable people in the world. Uh, first off, it's probably not going to surprise you that that's not true. It's not, at least it's not exactly true. There were some years, a few years back, where Americans ranked first in generosity in OECD countries. Uh, that hasn't been the case for several years. Um, we're usually around fourth. Um, but second, you, you have to ask yourself why Americans give so much. Like, could it be perhaps that we have so many more problems that nobody is doing anything about? Yeah. Okay. Right. Take. Uh, so I, I decided to just look up one thing, child poverty in the U.S., because I, the reason that popped into my mind is that's like the quintessential charitable cause, feed and clothe. Uh, uh, children in poverty. The United States ranks far, far behind countries that are supposedly less generous. If you live in a Nordic country, which has very high taxes, but not as many individual donations to charity, you find much, much less child poverty. In fact, the lowest rates in the world. In the most generous country in the world, the USA, uh, you're looking at child poverty rates worse than Mexico and Russia and other countries that the US likes to look down its nose at. So for for Marcus, the more free a market is, the smaller the welfare state. Like that's that's what he means when in that clip when he's talking about free markets, he's talking about uh, a smaller welfare state. Where does that clip come from, by the way? That comes from the Job Creators Network 
YouTube channel that, I mean, he founded and funds the Job Creators Network. And what, I mean, what the Job Creators Network is, it's it's one of these advocacy groups. So it's not exactly a think tank in the way that like think tanks had to pretend like they were more than suppliers of public opinions for corporate front groups. Uh, the advocacy groups don't even have to like pretend that they're not that they just are right. So like the entire point of the job creators network is to provide talking heads where people can advocate a free market perspective. Uh, I mean, and they, they make a bunch of like videos to, to do like viral propaganda online, like Prager you, I mean, they're like, they're less successful. Um, but that's basically, it's exactly what they're trying to do, right? Like they're trying to be Prager you, they're trying to be this kind of online viral <laughs> propaganda, uh, machine. Uh, they're just not as good at marketing it for whatever reason. So this is a, a long illustration, and maybe it seems like it's coming out of left field, but do you remember the band The Silver Jews? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I remember Okay, them. so yeah, I mean, and and the reason I guess I phrase it in the past tense is because you you may have noticed that you probably haven't heard about The Silver Jews in a really long time. And the reason for that is that uh, David Berman, uh, the guy who was the songwriter uh, of The Silver Jews, uh, quit music. Uh, for about a decade, I do. I do remember from college he had a really rich dad. That's he? right. Yeah, um, yeah. His dad's name was Rick Berman, and and uh, when David Berman disbanded the Silver Jews, he uh, he did so in a letter on his blog. Um, and I thought that I would read the letter uh, in in case uh, listeners are unfamiliar with the story. When when was the letter? When was the letter? Written. Uh, 2009, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds cool. Go ahead and read it. All right. Uh, so the, the letter is titled my father, my attack dog. Um, and I'm just going to read it straight. Uh, now that the Jews are over, I can tell you my gravest secret worse than suicide, worse than crack addiction. My father. You might be surprised to know he is famous for terrible reasons. My father is a despicable man. My father is a sort of human molester, an exploiter, a scoundrel, a world historical motherfucking son of a bitch. You can read about him here, uh, www.bermanexposed.org. My life is so weird. It's an allegorical, it's allegorical to the nth. My father went to college at Transylvania University. A vampire. <laughs> that's true i would get i wikipedia it it's, he went to college at transylvania wow uh, you, you see intense. what i'm saying a couple of years ago i demanded he stop his work <laughs> close down his company or i would sever our relationship he refused he's just gotten worse more evil more powerful we've been estranged for over three years even as a child i disliked him we were opposites i wanted to read he wanted to play games he's a union buster when I got out of college, I joined the Teamsters. The guards were union organized at the Whitney. I went off to hide in art and academia. I fled through this art portal for 20 years. In the meantime, my dad started a very, very bad company called Berman and Company. He props up fast food, soda, factory farming, childhood obesity and diabetes, drunk driving, secondhand smoke. He attacks animal lovers, ecologists, civil action attorneys, scientists, dietitians, doctors and teachers. 
His clients include everyone from the makers of Agent Orange to the tanning salon owners of America. He helped ensure the minimum wage did not move a penny from 1997 to 2007. 2021. The worst part for me as a writer is what he does with the English language. Though he is a vicious, uh, though vicious, he is a doltish thinker, and his spurious editorials rely on double think and always with a lashan hara. As I studied Judaism over the years, the shame and the shanda grew almost too much. My heart was constantly on fire for justice. I could find no relief. This winter, I decided that the silver Jews were too small of a force to ever come close to undoing a millionth of all the harm he has caused to you and everyone you know. Literally, if you eat food or have a job, he's reaching you. I've always hid this terrible shame from you, the fan. The silver Jews have always stood autonomous and clear. Hopefully it won't contaminate your feelings about the work. My life has been riddled with Ibsenism. In a way, I am the son of a demon come to make good the damage. Previously, I thought through songs and poems and drawings, I could find and build a refuge away from this world. But there is the matter of justice. And I'll tell you, it's not just a metaphor. The desire for it actually burns. It hurts. There needs to be something more. I'll see what that might be. Uh, and that's the, the end of the letter. Pretty intense letter. Extremely intense and extremely sad. If, if you don't know the story, uh, he ended his life in 2019. And until the end, he talked about the effect that his father had on his psychological health. So, uh, so I, I missed the connection or maybe... You didn't make the connection. Oh, I'm still. I'm What's still the getting connection it. to Bernie Marcus. Um, yeah, we kind of we kind of did a non sequitur. So, so who is Rick Berman? Uh, he is a guy who embraces his nickname, uh, which is Doctor Evil. Uh, he's been on 60 Minutes, Rachel Maddow, and the Colbert Report as this kind of curiosity story. Uh, that's and it's always like, uh, can you believe how evil this guy is? Uh, he lobbies for, you know, uh, that, that movie, thank you for smoking, I think was modeled on Rick Berman. Uh, he's, he's a guy who lobbies for the worst of the worst. Um, I mean, he attacks mothers against drunk driving and the humane society, uh, in, uh, on behalf of, uh, alcohol and animal testing. I mean, just, uh, you know, like the, he's fucking Dr. Evil. I mean, it's like that. It's accurate. It's, you know, very bad. Um, and so when you hire Rick Berman, you, uh, you like, like, the, you know, the 60 minutes in Colbert report videos. If you go to Berman and company website, that's on the front page. He's proud of that. When I say he embraces the nickname, Dr. Evil, I mean, he, like overtly he's branding himself in that way he has brand yes when you hire rick berman you know who you're hiring guess who bernie marcus hired <laughs> it's just like satan inc yeah it's satan inc <laughs> that's who bernie marcus hired to do the marketing for the job creators network and so really you know you might want to say bernie marcus is this old guy who's dumb as a post and he just got suckered into this sort of, you know, generic Fox <laughs> News libertarianism. That is not the case. He is everybody as evil as a Koch brother and he knows what he's doing because he hired the world's most like evil advocate to run his marketing for this lower taxes, union busting propaganda outfit that he founded. I guess the thing is when you're him, you're like, 
nobody nobody's going to know who I hire. It doesn't matter. People don't care. There's only 800 people looking at my YouTube channel anyway. Well, no, no, no. I mean, that, that's that's what I wanted to talk about next, which is that Rick Berman prides himself on not disclosing who his clients are. And so the reason that I know I see. that Rick Berman did the content creation for the Job Creators Network is only because some journalists tracked it down. So Bernie Marcus is probably not proud. He wouldn't publicly announce that he (coughs) willingly contracted Dr. Evil. Oh, no. It was... No, 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 no. It was intentionally obfuscated. Which makes it obviously a lot worse. (laughs) Right. That's what I... That's the point that I want to get to, is it's not... Bernie Marcus is not just some dumb guy. He's a guy who knows that... I mean, he's running a scam. Right. He gives some money away in philanthropy every few years or so. He gives away a whole bunch of money. So he makes some list and 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 he, you know, and other encourages other billionaires to do the same and, uh, you know, to make a name for themselves in philanthropy. And the sum total of the philanthropic giving that he donates is far, far smaller than the tax burden that he would owe in uh, in a sane society that provided for its citizens in a basic way. Right. And and so going around bragging about how amazing uh, his philanthropy is and the only thing that could ensure that that happens is a free market system like the one that we have. And we should even deregulate more to make it freer is a way for him to reduce his tax burden. And he's doing absolutely nothing else but that. He is a propagandist for the wealthiest uh, people in America. Uh, and he is redu- like his, he is reducing all of their tax burdens in, in, a, in, a, in a direct and, uh, and specific way. Yeah. So we're talking about this like sort of dynamic where, you know, it, where Marcus kind of lets the mask slip or tells on himself. And uh, one of the places that he does that is uh, in this book built from scratch, uh, where like he, while he's very invested in telling you how well Home Depot treats workers, there are like chapters that are dedicated to letting you know how well they treat employees, which they don't call employees. They call associates. Um, and, uh, here's how they explain why they call employees, uh, associates, Uh, To us, associate implies an equal as opposed to a wage slave. That's important because of the company's inverted management structure. We value what the salesperson on the store floor says just as much and sometimes more uh, than what a district manager says, if they're right. That's because the salesperson touches the customer more. Uh, And then they go on to sort of like talk about how salespeople are heroes. Um... And they are the ones with the product knowledge. Uh, and then they talk about wanting to make customers bleed orange, uh, which is weird. <laughs> but so they go on and on about how they are uh, such such great bosses. Uh, nevertheless, you know, Home Depot is notoriously anti-union uh, and they lobby hard against raising the minimum wage. Uh, and currently pay well below a $15 an hour uh, rate. Uh, 
like a you know it is considered by many who have worked there a shitty exploitative place to work do you have any like glass door quotes worked up for us uh, or anything? i'm just gonna lean i'm not even gonna go into it here this is another sort of nugget that i'm going to save for a future home depot episode uh but splinter yeah. uh did a three-part series called true stories of miserable home depot employees uh on the oh i'm gonna God. do it when we get ken langone because they published it on the occasion of ken langone publishing his book titled i love capitalism exclamation point um <laughs> oh and yeah i bet you do ken uh, langone um uh, and I so i'm gonna i'm do. gonna save that but like you know, they are uh, Home Depot is anti-worker in every way that matters. Right. Uh, they that I can't believe that's his the title of his book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, so my favorite my favorite moment of Bernie Marcus telling on himself is in two consecutive chapters of the book uh, built from scratch. Again, Home Depot not built from scratch, uh, which is chapter 13, How We Manage, and chapter 14, The Communities We Serve. The first thing I'll say is the subtitle of How We Manage is You Are Wearing an Invisible Collar. <laughs> and the chapter itself is an extended metaphor about how they treat their employees like dogs uh, to train them. And so, <laughs> so here's, here's how he explains it to one employee quote brute. And okay. So when I'm reading through this, like, and I know that you understand this reference, Joe, but like, think of uh, Frederick Taylor doing his Schmidt conversations, right? Like, okay. So this is a, yeah. this is how he explains it to one of Bruce. Let me put your new responsibilities this way. I explained, Think of your new job as being enclosed by an invisible fence and you are wearing a collar out there somewhere is a fence and you are going to keep running around in the yard doing your thing. At some point, you will inevitably go beyond the boundaries of what your job responsibilities should be and you will hit that fence and then you will get buzzed. You <laughs> the invisible fence is not just for our seven division presidents. It is used and applied throughout the company up to and especially in the stores. Our store managers and their assistant managers have more operating and decision making leeway than in other retail chains in America. We want them to roam and test the parameters to see how far they can move out on the fringe of the property. Uh, so and then there are like a bunch of stories after that introduction of their management style. Uh, about how then people like choose to do things on their own and they discipline them. So it's like, it, like the rest of it is not stories. I guess there, I mean, there are a couple of stories about how people like did experiments and succeeded, but there are just as many about how people uh, ran into the invisible fence and got buzzed, <laughs> which is, I don't know. It's like, seems I'm not going to tell you what your job responsibilities are. I'm just going to say, do your job. And if you don't do it in the way that I like, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> but the but this like I mean the, I think the more problematic part is that they're thinking of their employees as dogs and like the it goes yeah. through well that goes obvious. through like the entire <laughs> chapter right like so they they also sort of like insert nuggets of their philosophy in the book um how did this get through the editorial process how was no one involved in this know, being like you I, know I what? looked and I like, I like so if he, if they, wrote, this is 1999. If they wrote this today, that opening paragraph that I read about African American 
prosperity versus Jewish prosperity in America would would get a would get a dude canceled in one second. Uh, that is yeah. extreme racism to the max. Yeah, uh, this. I think would probably also get a person canceled these days. Uh, I mean, I don't know how it got through the editing process because like the thing is, it's not just like this cute, like invisible fence metaphor. It keeps coming up throughout the book. And I spent way too much time with this book, <laughs> but like, so like, and it's like, you should have a dog collar and you should be, and you are, you, you are literally a dog, right? Like to, to perform a symptomatic reading of this text is like, the most obvious thing imaginable, like the the sort of ideas simmering beneath the surface, are just like, oh, you actually think that these people are dogs, yeah, are subhuman and you're slaves, yeah. basically. That's what I'm that's, saying. Like, if you, you spend any time looking at, like, listening to Bernie Marcus speak or reading anything that he's written, you find that over and over again, him constantly telling on himself, like, just constantly revealing yeah. the latent content between the manifest content of what he says, like. It's crazy. Um, so immediately following that, like a, a chapter long metaphor about how employees are actual dogs uh, is a chapter called The Communities We Serve. And it is just pure self-congratulation about uh, that that amounts to an argument for the complete autonomy of the capitalist class and a dismantling of like any of sort of welfare state or yeah. social or public services. It's like, we don't need unions because we treat our workers uh, amazingly well, like the best dogs you could imagine. And we don't need social services because Home Depot gives back to the community through philanthropy. So those are like the, the chapters work consecutively in that way. Right. It's like, like there doesn't need to be any sort of governor on the free market. Uh, whether it's a labor union or uh, government regulation, uh, we don't need any of those things, you know, because everything is working great and we're doing a great job. Um, I just don't even understand. Like, I don't even understand how self-promotion in this context or really in any context can be taken seriously. I mean, if you're telling me how awesome you are, I don't care anymore. You know, like somebody else can tell me if you're awesome and I can judge if yeah. they're legit or not, <laughs> you know, but it's like, if your whole thing is to be like, I'm extraordinarily generous and basically a great person. Well, yeah. I mean, this is something that, that, I mean, we've been on this beat since the beginning of the podcast, which is that the self-congratulatory impulses of billionaires are extremely active because they think <laughs> because they're rich they and this is why they all write books and this is why we want to open up this mindset series where we're reading what they write like they all write books because they all think that well i'm rich and everybody is trying to do this and only i only me and a few others because like i think that they make the sort of category error of thinking that everybody else is sort of like them Right. That's like fundamental attribution error that people are doing the things that they do in life for the same reasons that they do them. And they think that everybody is trying to get rich, but only I uh, and a few other people have been able to do this. Uh, and so I must have some sort of special wisdom. Right. And I have to I have to yeah, communicate this yeah. to people in book form. Uh, and. I mean, honestly, like the the uh, the Home Depot book, the, they have like these 14 management principles and it is so fucking amazing. Like, 
two of the principles are the same thing. One is like hire good people, <laughs> and another one is like hire successful people. You know, like it's just like they, like they, they can't even. It's like they named a number of principles they wanted, but then they they couldn't come up with enough. I mean, it is ridiculously stupid uh, um, and takes up like 100 pages. It's like their management flow. Like- well, I mean, that's uh, to go back to the thing you were saying a second ago, though. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it is it, the, the, the attribution error point, I think, is on point. That makes sense to me. But there's a there's just another I mean, clearly sort of narcissistic or just if it's not that it's just a it's just a need to convince the world that what you're doing is okay. You know, I mean, it's a hegemonic kind of energy. Oh man. I think that you just walked into like a, a very deep truth about economics, right? So like uh neoclassical economics is extremely invested in defining a kind of generic human being as, as this organism that tries to maximize benefits and minimize costs, right? You're, you're just constantly applying this mini max principle to your, your interactions. Um, but that very impulse is a reaction formation against them recognizing that acting in that way is a completely aberrant manifestation of what it means to be human, right? Which is like to be a human being is to be a member of a community and to have friendship and love. But acting in that way is a sociopathic way. And so they have to develop this entire philosophy of human motivations to justify acting in a sociopathic way because they have no other way to live in the world, right? Like It's like, well, of course, everybody's doing this. Everybody's just like acting in this like way because that's just what people are. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> but like, but, and that's why everyone else like reads it and they're like, what are you talking about? That's not why I do what I do. And, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I, I mean, we got to rate him. I like, I think that the, the fact that he goes around selling, like, so <clears throat> in the way that like a tent revival preacher makes you especially mad because you know that they're self-consciously. And this is the whole, you know, thing about Rick Berman. Like he's self-consciously promoting what he knows to be evil, uh, that uh, to take advantage of people. Like that, that. Like there's something diabolically evil about that, and uh, uh, yeah, know, in that in that disgusting kind of televangelist way. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's a te- he's a televangelist yeah. for capitalism. He's a just dis- like, is there, for is there a more yeah. disgusting yeah. creature <laughs> yeah. than a televangelist for like for the billionaire class for for, <laughs> for yeah, 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 that's fucked up. I want to give him like, but you know, but he does have limited power. So he's kind of like a talking head on TV sometimes. I think he's probably an eight. That's exactly the number that I was going to say, actually, is like he can't be a 10. He just doesn't have the sway, the swagger. Uh, but in terms of being shitty as a person, I think an eight. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for bearing with the show this long. Now we're at the end, and at the end of every episode, we do this thing where we pick billionaires to talk about next episode. And uh, 
we have a random billionaire selector that Chad is in control of. So, Chad, are you ready to spin the random billionaire selector wheel? Yes. Ah, I love doing this. It's so fun. All right, number one is number 523, David Hindawi. Uh, $1.8 billion, executive chairman of cybersecurity firm Tanium. You know what? Uh, I don't think we've really, yeah, I don't think we've done anything with that. Cybersecurity could be interesting. And billionaire number two for next time is very high on the list. Number 36, not the highest that we've had, but almost Steve Cohen. Oh, wow. He's very famous. Well, you do him. You do him. I'll do the cybersecurity guy. I think I'm giving myself the harder segment again, but I'm (laughs) (laughs) going to take the cybersecurity guy. All right. All right. It's always a gamble sometimes. Uh, There's so much stuff out there about Steve Cohen. I mean, it's going to be a, it's just a picnic for you, basically. Oh, yeah, I see. He's uh, done a lot of crimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, excellent. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody, we really, we, we really appreciate you listening to the whole show. And uh, if you get a second to like or subscribe or write a review, that's always a nice thing for, for us. I don't have anything else. Chad, do you have anything else? No, uh, just a heartfelt thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Okay, see you next time. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.